the trajectory toward equity is necessary. But I think it's really, really important to think about the way in which that technology was embedded in a social and economic context. I think that technologies in general can be either substitutes or complements to what we do. The enabling capacity is extraordinary. We need to realize that there's a social responsibility to value us at the same time. Hello, I'm Takeo Guevara, and together with Dave Lashansky, we'd like to welcome you to this episode of Plenty Ideas That Matter. Plenty Ideas That Matter is a podcast that explores how technology and innovations in the field of big data are being debated among the thought leaders in the urban planning field. For the past two episodes, we've been diving into the implications of robotics and artificial intelligence for urban planners. In this episode, we'll introduce a new take from another member of MIT's Urban Planning Department's faculty. Today, we'll be speaking with Albert Zeiss. I'm on the right seat. <laughs> Albert is a faculty member who's done a lot of work in public finance and economic development in the urban and real estate spaces. And Albert's take was a new one compared to many of those who we've heard on this podcast. Absolutely. And it's important to remember the level of diversity of opinions we're seeing generated all by economists on a similar topic. Albert is focused on real estate economics and urban economic development, so his perspective on many of the issues we've been discussing was really illuminating. Economics and robots. Sounds like fun. But before we get too deep into the nitty-gritty of planning and robotization, I think it's important that we include the frame through which Albert views many of urban planning's most controversial issues. For sure. I don't think any of our other guests have yet mentioned the role of developers in their explanations of urban planners' roles. It's certainly true that people used to perceive planning as anti-development and developers, mostly, and the interests, uh, economic and financial interests of developers to be really against uh, planning. But I don't think that's the case any longer. In the 40s and 50s, I would say that the real estate community and the planning community were not that far apart, but their commonality of interest was really geared to segregating land uses so that commercial uses were separate from residential uses and separate from industrial uses. And then planning starts deviating, I think, in the 60s and 70s, you know, following emancipatory movements in the 60s and the late 60s and then 70s, more social equality of movements. I think planning starts deviating and thinking more about equality, thinking more about environmental issues, thinking more about quality of life, but in a holistic sense, not just in a kind of real estate marketing kind of sense. And I do want to believe that there's a new and better conscience among uh, many developers, especially younger developers, that they don't do things this way in other countries and we can do things better. It seems like Albert's again hitting on something we haven't really discussed yet, the demands and forces that can prevent urban planners from intervening and creating. Yes, and the questions in our previous episodes revolved quite a bit about who to plan for, not, as Albert is highlighting here, how to implement those plans. But I do think that the thoughtfulness and intention that goes into making sure these processes are implemented in the best way possible is important. Certainly, and I don't think Albert would disagree with that. But from his experiences at the Center for Real Estate, he sees a synergistic balance between planners and developers that may address the political and social constraints that might not be serving planners in their work. It's a great time to be in a school of urban planning and 
being the director of the Center for Real Estate because I do see actually synergies that certainly I couldn't have seen 15 years ago, not even probably 10 years ago, certainly not 20 years ago or 30 years ago. But you know, I think part of my role is also to try to see both sides, see that there's a confluence of, of kind of ideas and interests and there's a lot of win-win solutions that we can adopt. I think traditionally the role of the planner is to take into account the public interest and sort of think of urbanism as a whole to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to be happier in the urban environment. And by happiness, there's many meanings to happiness, but certainly having having access to jobs, having access to transportation, having a decent shelter, so housing, and having a clean environment. So I think you come from more of a public policy perspective and from a perspective of looking at the ensemble or the whole. We cannot forget, though, that planning policies are affected by politics. And it doesn't require a lot of argumentation these days to make transparent that politics are not necessarily reflecting the public interest all the times. So at the same time that you have the mission, which is pure and good and in terms of coordination, you have the political realities and the lobbies and the pressures that make the outcomes necessarily much more complicated and not necessarily always shaped for the best. I think developers, in a way, they have simpler processes. So their objectives are really to do things, to make things happen. So, I mean, the good aspect of working with developers and talking to them is really they're really can do and make it happen oriented. And that is a great thing because as the political system has evolved in the United States, it's difficult to do pretty much anything because we start with very different sets of ideas and ideals and, and the political battles become complicated. Developers are just people who do things. Just move around, go straight, upside down, sideways, whatever it takes, they make it happen. So that's a great thing. On the non necessarily plus side, their objectives are really devoted to that one project. So they not necessarily, but as a generic problem, I think that developers might not sometimes take into account the whole. So what's the impact on the environment, of traffic, of this one development? So, so I think it should be a positive interaction where you got a group that is supposed to look for the holistic public interest and another group who's supposed to make it happen. So if you take these two, it's great. But if you let the worst of both groups, so that you know, on the developer side, the focus on their own projects and their own financial interest and on the planning side, the politics, and the, then it's it's the worst interaction. So I think that our job is to actually make the positive interactions sprout and, and thrive and minimize those more negative interactions that come to the, to the minds of people when thinking about planning versus development. So what's the ultimate goal here? What are planners and developers aiming for in Albert's view? I think it's really about lifestyle. You know, now the big mantra for, for residential development is live, work, play, which is a bit of more holistic. There you are, no? You have live, 
in a high quality of life sense. Work, so communing is important, transportation is important, the relationship between the users is important, mixed users are good, and play, involve yourselves with community in, in, in perhaps hedonistic ways, but not necessarily. You know, my children do play all the time and it's very positive experience. So, so yeah, certainly I think you have that quality of life concern so the synergy between planners and developers is meant to improve quality of life. Sure, but what does any of this have to do with robots? Well, there's an important step that bridges the two, and it's in our old friend, big data. I think that the big data movement or the big data revolution, I think, in urbanism and planning, it's really geared right now towards focusing on, on quality of life, improving quality of life. And quite frankly, if you ask me, I think that's what it should be doing. I don't think we can expect for big data to solve all the social problems. I think we need much deeper conversations, much deeper social, socioeconomic, uh, social psychology, psychological, behavioral conversations. Most problems are not going to be resolved by big data, but specific quality of life problems that have to do with noise, traffic, civic, behavior, they have to do with health, with work, living, the distance between the two and how you commute, public transportation. Many of them more practical concerns are actually going to be able to be addressed with, with big data. So I think that, that reinforces that, in a way, confluence of interests by both the market forces and a public interest for solutions that provide better lifestyle to the residents. In a way, in here, I think planners were just a little bit behind industry. No? I mean, uh, the uh, first phase is really going to be just do things that we do already, but do them a bit faster and a bit more efficiently. Now, interestingly, a lot of what we're sold in terms of big data is actually you no know, very expensive, hyper face recognition everywhere where they know your name and your DNA. I mean really hyper-complicated, complex systems. I think they're, they're going to come, but they're going to take some time. I think that's, that's not the low-hanging fruit, and we shouldn't take it. We should start taking you know, the ripe fruit that's down there in terms of better customer services, better analysis, and relatively cheap interventions. But I think that it's, it's important that we empower planners and policymakers generically to be on the demand side on this one. Okay, you have to be on the demand side, you have to be a really careful customer, you have to know what you want, how exactly you want it, and how much you want to pay for it. We're in a period of creative destruction in terms of big data, and I think we need to educate the planner community, policy community, to be the discerning customer, quote unquote. So we improve many of our daily activities and interactions using data collection and analysis. We study and map out the ways humans act using that data and intervene in those key spaces, and... Now we're ready for the robots. So what's Albert's take here? I think that technologies in general can be either substitutes or complements to what we do. Robots are certainly would be more on the substitutes side for specific human tasks that we can do. And you could argue that that's kind of what you'd expect, no, in terms of the, the ultimate utopia would be to have a robots do the more manual tasks. And for us to 
be able to devote ourselves to more like uh, personal services or exchanges that are mutually fulfilling. No, so I teach you Spanish, you teach me German, and there's also other good things. Like we're talking about, for instance, these new trends towards small breweries or artisan shops, artisan production of foods and more ecological, local foods, local arts. In my view as an economist, I think the the fact that the tasks that are more repetitive, we're getting so productive at those that's in a way freeing labor to go into this more artisan and more artistic or design or activities that are based on interpersonal, interpersonal interactions. It's happening because of we're becoming so productive that now we can devote many more people to actually go into these other areas. Now in the 60s or 40s, we had to employ 70% of our workforce in agriculture and, and manufacturing, like really rotten kind of types of repetitive jobs. So the positive view is, okay, we're shifting the economy and maybe there's new jobs that require more creativity, more design, more interpersonal skills. This all sounds great, to a point. Albert doesn't pretend that robotization is great for everyone. There's always kind of the good and the bad, no? With the substitution aspect of, of robotic technologies, we have that they're substituting for low-skill jobs and the inequality problems are really concerning. But the point that kept coming up, the point that highlights just how fraught so much of the planning space can be. The point that ideally fixes the problems of robotization doesn't seem to be a quick fix. That has to be remediated in terms of policy. It's not going to remediate by itself, at least in the short run. And then I think we really need to think about taxation, about redistribution very seriously. Although, unfortunately, again, the political environment is not, it's not there. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed these three episodes focused on the impacts of big data and robotization on labor. We hope you've heard some new ideas about urban planners' role in mapping and adapting to societal changes driven by advancing technologies. Many of us don't think about economics as integral to the field of urban planning. In the next three episodes, we'll be exploring the philosophical and political dimensions of urban planning and urban science. Until then, we'd like to thank Albert Seitz in the Department of Urban Studies and Planning. And we'll catch you next time.